second in our two-part series on transgender medicine and our last episode of season one. Dr. Adam Dell discusses services that are provided by the University of Utah and other organizations, as well as family planning considerations for transgender patients in this episode. Dr. Lucy continues to highlight important themes in transgender medicine and on a personal front, the challenges involved with navigating this space as a parent. Keep your eyes peeled. Season two will be back up in fall 2021. Now, as always, you can find additional resources on transgender medicine and free AMA CME credit information at our website. Enjoy. Adam, I have a couple of questions for you about your clinic. Uh, where do your patients come from just here outside the state, et cetera, and who pays for it? Do they have insurance that will cover these treatments? Yeah, that's a very good question. And I think what's great about being part of the University of Utah is our catchment area and the amount of individuals we have um, who come from out of state is actually quite large. We have a large amount of individuals from Idaho, Wyoming, Nevada, um, some folks from Arizona. So, um, you know, a lot of people have come to us in person. I think one of the few good things that, have, that has come from the pandemic is it has opened up a lot of doors for telemedicine and has allowed us to reach out to those individuals through a telehealth capacity as well. Um, as far as when it comes to insurance benefits, you know, some insurance companies are better than others, but I think it definitely goes to um, it speaks to a lot of the inequities um, that are available for gender diverse individuals. For example, puberty blockers, while they are incredibly effective medications at accomplishing what we're trying to do, they are horribly expensive. How much um, are we talking? talking? Yeah, so one of those injections that are done every um, three or four months um, can range from anywhere to four to $6,000 a dose. Um, the implantable rod, which is typically, um, good for about a year. We try to, um, monitor it to make sure it's working even beyond that. That's about four to $6,000 a dose for one of the versions. Um, another one of the versions can be way more than that. So, um, there are some insurance companies who provide benefits for it partially, um, I think Select Health um, has been fantastic at providing support for a lot of their clients when it comes to puberty blocking medicines. Um, there are some insurance companies who do, do not provide any coverage and a lot of that has to come out of pocket or we have to explore other options to achieve what um, the patient's goals of care are. Um, when it comes to gender affirming hormones, um, you know, they're rather inexpensive compared to the blockers. Um, you know, estradiol pills can be less than $30 a month. Testosterone can be less than $50 a month with good RX coupons. Um, and some insurances will pay for those types of medications. Um, visit appointments typically are covered to some degree as well. Um, but you can imagine it's kind of, it's definitely a challenge knowing who will pay for what and 
I think that's what's so great about our support staff. My nurse Haley McLaughlin has just been so great at working with insurance companies, working, um, helping with the prior authorization process and, and helping with families overall um, so that their healthcare needs are being met. Do you know if the University of Utah Health Insurance covers this, this treatment? I have a lot of individuals who are on um, university plans and they do provide benefits to some degree after, you know, things like co-pays and that sort of thing are being met. Right. And then um, I was looking on the website of the transgender health clinic for adults. And I was really amazed at all at the U how many services they provide. So even primary care, adult hormone therapy, gender affirmation, surgery, fertility, gynecological and neurological care, voice therapy, which I didn't even know existed, but makes sense. Pelvic floor rehabilitation, laser hair removal, counseling and mental health. That's an amazing list. And a lot of those are in pediatrics too, just not quite so many. What do you do for family planning? I mean, how do you have that conversation and how do you, you know, maintain someone, someone's fertility if they want that as an option for when they're older? Yeah, first I had to give credit to the leadership of that program, Dr. Corey Agarwal, Dr. Erica Sullivan, Dr. Nikki Neilopoulos. Um, you know, all those all those services are in place because of their efforts. Um, when it comes to family planning, you know, that's a very challenging topic to have. Um, prior to starting gender affirming hormones, I think it's imperative that we are talking to patients and families about possibly exploring ways for fertility preservation, whether that is harvesting and making sperm or um, you know, eggs to be used later on in life. You, it's also very challenging because we're asking 14, 15, 16 year old individuals to make very significant decisions about their fertility at a young age. And, you know, I reflect when I was that young, when I was 16, I didn't really have any sights on having children in the future. It was a, something I was thinking a lot about. Um, but, you know, part of this whole informed consent model and making sure that we are first doing no harm to our patients is making sure we're having that conversation about having children in the future, because it is a huge part of an individual's life. Um, you know, we have a handful of individuals who explore those fertility preserving um, methods. We have a lot who choose not to, um, and you ultimately respect their decisions. And I think right now there are a lot of uncertainties in the future when it comes to fertility of a person um, who is on gender affirming medications. But we got to recognize that, you know, there are a lot of trans guys who go on testosterone testosterone, for example, who might choose to stop testosterone and try to have a child later on. Some of those individuals are successful, some are not. Um, and I think, you know, we have to paint that picture of, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty, a lot of unknown and um, weigh those risks and weigh those benefits. But we do that for a lot of different types of care. We provide individuals, whether it's gender affirming care, whether it's chemotherapy for cancer treatment, um, you know, a lot of people recognize gender affirming care to be life-saving for some. A lot of people recognize chemotherapy to be life-saving for some. Both can have implications on fertility later on down the road. I think it's important to kind of recognize it that way. 
So for, but in order to have that happen for some sort of gender preservation, you'd have to stop the hormone blockers and let them go through some sort of puberty, right. To be able to have enough testosterone to make sperm or have eggs, or can you, this might sound stupid, but I know, you know, you're born with eggs. Can you harvest those or do they have to, does a, you know, someone born female have to go through some sort of puberty in order to harvest them? Yeah. So some, some degree of puberty typically has to be in play. Um, you know, there are a lot of different medications that can help that process. Um, but typically we, we, we wait for some degree of puberty to actually happen, not only for fertility reasons, but for other reasons as well. For example, um, a trans feminine individual who might want gender affirming surgery and might want vaginal plasty later on down the road. Um, you know, it's nice to have some growth of the phallus influenced by um, puberty before puberty blockers are implemented that allows for tissue growth in that area that can be used for surgical use down the road. So um, yeah, um, you know, we're not blocking puberty at, at the age of like eight necessarily. We, we definitely want some degree of puberty to happen for those reasons. These sound like really heavy conversations to have with adolescents. Lucy, when you hear this stuff, does it make you like afraid for your child to grow up or lucky that you live in Salt Lake where this exists or how does it make you feel? Um, both, you know, I, I, I do feel very lucky that we live in a, um, a state where we have an amazing gender clinic and that I'm lucky enough that I have insurance that will probably pay for all of this. But I think as a parent on a personal front, it presents some fear and some sadness moving forward because, you know, I think you, every kid has some hardships and difficult decisions, but from an early age, from age five, I already see what some of those are and will be moving forward. Whereas sometimes for your five-year-old, you may not know what those are yet. Um, so the path forward may look a little easier. So I think, you know, that's, it's going to be a very difficult conversation. And I think it's going to be hard uh, if, if this is the route she wants to go and she wants to choose, um, you know, cross hormone therapy, I think we're going to have some um, some difficult conversations that are just challenging. And um, I, I'll be, I don't know where that road will take us, but I'm, it, it does give me pause and a little bit of heartache as a parent, knowing that a kid has to make some deep, hard decisions at that young of an age. And do you want to just, you told me that you took your child to the um, equivalent clinic at um, Children's Hospital Colorado. Do you want to just talk about a bit about what your experience was there and Maybe at some point that will be part of Salt Lake's clinic as well, like what they have that we don't have at this point. Sure. And Adam, this is no way like uh, disparaging of your clinic. You can cut this part out, Carrie, but um, <laughs> I don't, this is not like a criticism, but just kind of what our experience. Um, so since our kid was so young, I think, as I stated before, one of our biggest challenges was just kind of understanding like what was you know, the language barrier, trying to figure out what's going on. Is, is that what we think we're seeing? You know, we had just so many questions as parents and trying to figure it out. And I think, you know, I, medically, you really don't need care until you either uh, approach puberty or maybe express gender dysphoria. But as a parent of a young child, very confused what's going on. I think we still needed a little bit more. And insurance-wise, it was hard for us because 
the clinic here um, told us they didn't see kids that young. And then there's um, no, no one who saw kids that young was covered by our insurance either. So uh, we, through sort of a network, we met a family in Colorado who had gone to the True Center in Denver um, and they uh, told us they had a great experience there. So we went out there and just kind of, it's a preliminary meeting with an endocrinologist and a pediatric, uh, I think it was a psychiatrist, um, who just kind of talked to us about it and what some of the major issues were, what, what things might look like moving forward. Um, and it sounds like this is something that's developing in Utah and the adult clinic here is amazing, but they kind of offer those services for kids too, where they have social workers, psychiatrists, um, and they will help you navigate the school system. So they have people who are liaisons with the school systems and with the community who can go out and meet with principals with you and help you kind of figure all that out. So it was, I don't know, as a parent, it was a bit of a, oh, okay, this is, this is what's happening. We, we can now wrap our heads around it. We can now like move forward with it. And it was just really affirming to know that what we thought was going on, that our child was transgender, was thought that same thought was by professionals. Because as a parent, you just, you, you view your kids through a certain lens and you don't know if that's the lens that an objective person would view your kid through. So the professional opinion kind of matched our opinion and they were really amazing. You know, they said they, they do get patients from out of state. They um, weren't as familiar with Utah schools, but they would be totally willing to work with us if we wanted to engage them in our, in sort of navigating the school system. Since then, you know, we have, we're just kind of paying out of pocket for um, a psychologist who sees our daughter. Uh, and again, it's not because of any dysphoria, but it's just to kind of navigate some of these issues that arise um, in, in terms of like, we already had one bullying incident and, you know, we're going to start a new school. What are some of the things that might arise? Um, we came up with a gender plan with the help of the therapist and we met with a principal and the teacher who's going to be our daughter's teacher to come up again with kind of a gender plan. Um, and we've recently learned that our school district in the last year or two has come up with sort of a 504 equivalent for gender, where uh, they will change the pronouns on the school grading system. They will put in a name that the child chooses. Um, you know, there's still kind of the original paperwork that goes with them, but at least all the teachers who pull up the system will see she, her, and the name. If we change names, it will be a different name. So we're kind of learning as we go learning what we need to look into for school, learning what, you know, what we need from a psychologist or therapist, like moving forward. And it's just been kind of learning how to navigate all this and learning how to best advocate for our kid and, and get her what she needs. Adam, are there people at your clinic that would help patients like Lucy, like navigate the system or how, how do the parents know how to talk to the schools and the, you know, sports coach and all the neighborhood and all that stuff would be a steep learning curve for patients, I'm guessing. Yeah. You know, I think, I think it's unfortunate that you know, Lucy had to go out of state to get that type of support. And I think, you know, our program certainly is in its infancy. I think it's definitely growing in terms of the types of service we are able to provide families and um, provide patients. I think it's, you know, we are just now, um, just recently, um, we're able to get a clinic psychologist within our clinic, Dr. Jessica Robinette, who um, helps with a lot of um, 
you know, these types of um, questions um, and provides this types of support to individuals. Um, but I think it kind of goes to, you know, again, one of those inequities and one of those underserved um, um, areas within gender affirming care um, that we definitely need to build on as an institution. And, um, the University of Utah and the state of South Dakota, I, I think it would be fantastic if we had, you know, like a social worker and other people who can advocate for individuals at the school level. And I think right now, um, you know, Dr. Milopoulos, myself, um, our nurse Haley, we try to fill that void to the best of our ability. Um, um, I think we're doing an okay job, but I definitely do think a lot of things could be better. And I think that's a good vision to have for the future because gender diverse individuals aren't going anywhere. If anything, we're seeing a lot more of them coming forward and asking for assistance. And, um, you know, it's up to institutions like the University of Utah to heed that call and provide that type of care. And I want to put the caveat that I'm really impressed with the GEMS Clinic and we're really excited to be part of it moving forward. And I think they do so much good work. Um, and I just looking nationwide when we were kind of researching how to get help, I think one of the bigger gaps is for the youngest kids because um, I think as more people are aware, kids are presenting earlier, correct me if I'm wrong, Adam, but you know, I think there's, there's more awareness that if this is what's happening to your three, four, five-year-old, then maybe that is that they are transgender. And I think kids are showing up earlier. And so I, that's when we were kind of looking into it, that just seemed where there was a, a little bit of a gap in terms of um, just lagging behind in terms of social support. Yeah, we definitely see that gap. We see a lot, of, we, we we're doing all right with teenagers, the the Department of Family Medicine and the Family Medicine Resident is doing amazing for adults. But, you know, I think when it comes to pediatric individuals, there, there that inequity exists. There aren't a lot of residency programs providing this type of education. Um, there aren't a lot of pediatricians or primary care providers comfortable having these discussions or practicing this type of care. And it would be really nice if, you know, that dynamic shifts a little bit. And so we can address those types of gaps. Um, you know, the need is there. Um, it definitely is there. And it, like I said, I don't think it's going anywhere. Um, so I, I think, you know, we are trying our best to educate our pediatric residents, um, have some exposure to providing care for this particular population. And, um, I would like to eventually, you know, see a lot more pedi pediatricians come out of residency with some knowledge on how to provide gender affirming care to um, pediatric individuals and adolescent individuals. And I have to say, so Lucy and I both trained here. I finished 10 years ago. Honestly, I don't remember learning a single thing about transgender medicine, or if I did, it was very transient, maybe like an hour. It was not something that was discussed in detail. And I feel like it's now making my job harder as a primary care pediatrician because I feel like I'm playing catch up. I'm trying though. Yeah. And, <laughs> and I'll admit, I didn't get a lot of exposure either until I met Dr. Milopoulos and she acted as my mentor and, um, you know, allowed me to explore this a little bit more. And, 
you know, I, I, I'm not an endocrinologist. I, I, I'm a general pediatrician by trade. Um, and I, I think what's great is those opportunities to, you know, develop that mastery are there. I think right now there are a lot of barriers allowing providers to reach that mastery. Um, you know, a lot of it is a lot of the scary legislature that pops up every year. I think that hinders a lot of people from wanting to pursue this type of um, education and provide this type of care for individuals. Yeah, for sure. Lastly, I just had a question kind of for both of you about, so GID, I guess, which stands for gender identity disorder or gender dysphoria is another thing. I feel like we're kind of, we're putting a medical terminology and pathology to this issue. It's almost saying like being lesbian has a medical diagnosis. Do you think there'll be a point where it doesn't have a medical diagnosis because you, it kind of, like you said, it makes and makes you think that this is not, that this maybe not a choice is the wrong word, but this is not just how people are. There's it's, it's pathologized in some way. That's my hope. You know, I think a lot of families come to my clinic wanting to know if their child is transgender or not. And, you know, I, I'm very big at educating families that it, there's only one person who knows that for sure or can explore that for themselves. And that is your child. And the best you can do is support them. And, you know, I can, I can tell you if your child is meeting the check boxes for gender dysphoria, and I can provide you with the education um, on, on treatments and that sort of thing. But, you know, I look at gender identity as just one piece of the puzzle when it comes to who we are. Everyone has a gender identity. Everyone has a sexual identity. It's just part of who we are. Um, and I agree, um, we, use pathological nomenclature like this, it, it doesn't do individuals a whole lot of service. I do think it kind of helps people feel a little bit more comfortable about the subject. How about you, Lucy, anything to add about that? Um, you know, uh, again, I will know more about this than I do, but I, I kind of view it as the gender dysphoria pieces when they have anxiety or stress about the fact that their gender identity doesn't match their sex identified at birth. Um, and I almost wonder if as you know, you, you fast forward 30, 40 years, as it becomes more accepted in society, will that be less? Is, is that just a societal piece that kids are having this anxiety and these feelings because their family's not supportive, their social structure isn't supportive. So it's a, it's an interesting, puzzle with lots of pieces. Yeah, and I think where it stands, a lot of families like professionals, you know, they, they, they look to see if dysphoria is present in order to allow individuals to get access to healthcare. And it's not every transgender individual or gender diverse individual necessarily has dysphoria. Um, so we shouldn't necessarily use that as a gate to get that type of care I think you know I agree I think a lot of that distress comes from a lot of these other outside influences on the individual and aren't there even some other cultures where there is like an identified kind of like a third sex or you know it's more accepted and probably less gender dysphoria for people to have different aspects of 
different, you know, more traditional masculine or feminine. I'm blinking out. I don't know if it's like Thailand or like some, do either of you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I, there, there are throughout the world. And I think right in the United States, there are a lot of indigenous populations um, who recognize that, those aspects of an individual and celebrate those aspects of individuals and use in certain individual indigenous populations, we use terms like two-spirited to describe, you know, those masculine and feminine qualities that a person might exhibit both in a way. Um, so, you know, gender diversity has been present in nature for a very long time. It's not necessarily new. I think it's becoming a little bit more apparent um, for a lot of reasons, whether it's media's influence or medical society's influence. But um, you know, I, think it, I think it's a piece that deserves to be celebrated and um, not necessarily looked at as a medical diagnosis. Yeah, I agree. I think that's a probably great place to, to stop. Thank you guys for both being on. I think I learned a lot. And like you said, Adam, it's okay to make mistakes with terminology. I think as long as you're trying your best and listening to your patients and respecting their, their wishes and letting them teach you is the most important thing. And as this issue or, you know, evolves more, we'll all learn more. Thanks guys. Thank you for having me. Thanks.